Good morning, everyone. I'll be reading this morning from Ezra chapter 7, verse 1 to 10, and then jumping forward to Ezra chapter 8, verse 31 to 36. Um, But before we read that, please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the book of Ezra, and we pray for understanding of it and humility before it. Amen. So Ezra chapter 7, verse 1 to 10. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And then moving into chapter 8, verse 31 to 36. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binuai. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and, as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. That's the kind of Bible reading that you've got to give to someone who you have somewhat of depth of relationship, put it that way, because they may never speak to you again otherwise. Um, we've been having a bit of fun in our home at the moment. Our, our daughter has a dog, and she's been teaching her dog how to do stuff, teaching tricks and so on. It's been an interesting experience watching her teach a dog to do tricks, and it's made me realise that actually the way it's done is... is let, let me explain. So to teach a puppy to sit, you basically hold a treat tight in your hand so it can't get it, make its head lift up, push it back so it sits on its own bottom, 
and then say, sit and give the treat. So you kind of show it what it is you want it to do. That makes sense, doesn't it? The same can be said for teaching it to, to be down or to spin or to turn, you move your hand around and so on. It's been a little bit more tricky for Courtney to teach her dog to wave. But it can be done. Moving seamlessly from dogs to humans. I reckon we can be taught slightly more complex tricks, don't you think? But how do you teach a Christian to live according to the word of God? I reckon, yeah, there is a bit of a connection here, just bear with me. If you show a Christian what it looks like, it makes it easier, doesn't it? You don't need treats, but if you can demonstrate it, show what it looks like to live according to the word of God, it makes it that much easier to see and to follow the example. And that's kind of what we've got here in Ezra, chapters 7 and 8. We've got an example in the man of Ezra, someone who lives by the word of God, and it's been recorded for us and kept, and we can see what it looks like and attempt to imitate. It's one of those weeks, though, where reading through chapters 7 and 8, I was scratching my head for a while wondering, what do you do with this part of the Bible? How does it teach us to live as followers of Jesus? But after reading and rereading, I think there's two things that jump off the page. The first thing, you'll see this in the sermon outline, trying to keep it nice and clear for you. The first thing is that the sovereign, you see the sovereign hand of God at work. You see God's sovereignty, him in control of every detail, every circumstance. But that's something you see in almost every Old Testament passage. The second thing that jumps off the page, I reckon, is what I've just drawn your attention to, the first-hand example of Ezra. It's like this, the bulk of this reads like his diary, saying what he did in a way that puts him up as an example that we can follow. Yes, we're New Testament Christians. We put our New Testament glasses on and look back into the Old Testament, but there's some easy parallels to our situation as New Testament Christians. Let's start with placing ourselves in context, looking at the overview of the passage. In chapter 7 here of Ezra, we're we're kind of jumping ahead of time. If you look at the, the dates on the screen behind me, if you can read it, if you can't, it's not the end of the world. Ezra opened, the book opened with the time of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus issuing a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their temple. In fact, he wanted a temple rebuilt there. And then you go through the time of Darius, the next king, and then Xerxes, um, the one that married Esther, if you remember the story of Esther. In 7 verse 1, we're told that we're now in the time of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Um, 7 verse 8 places in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. So if you, you know, play with the numbers, this could be something like 60 years after the return um, to Jerusalem had begun. And that helps you kind of understand the, the context that we're in. What we're reading here in Ezra, it also makes you appreciate this is a very selective account. I mean, this is a long period of time. It's a very short book. So this is a selective account of different highlights along the way through all those years. And it's also a reminder of just how slow and tedious the return from exile was and the process of rebuilding the temple and then the walls. It went on for years and years and years. Last week in chapter 4, we saw the kind of opposition that the people faced as they set about rebuilding the temple and the walls. And that opposition, yeah, it had an effect. It slowed down the whole process. It took a long time. Um, the first group, uh, of the, what, here in chapter 7, though, Ezra is now arriving, the person who the book's named after. This is, he's bringing the second wave 
of returnees from, Jerusalem, uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem. The second wave is led by Ezra. Um, the first wave was read, led by Zerubbabel. If you've been reading, you would have worked that out. And then if you read into Nehemiah that we're looking at in growth groups, that's the third wave of returnees. Um, and here's a reminder of what we've covered so far in Ezra. In chapters 1 and 2, I showed you those two miracles. The first one where God works in the heart of the pagan king um, Cyrus and makes him want to build a temple in Jerusalem. And so God is faithful to his promises that that would happen. And God also works in the heart of the people, causing them to want to return. And so you see God's faithfulness and you see God's sovereignty in chapters 1 and 2. Then in chapter 3, what you do is you see Israel on a good day doing everything they can to live according to the word of God and build this temple in exactly the fashion it should be built in. And then you come to chapters 4 to 6 where you see the opposition to the building of the temple. And today in Ezra 7 and 8, what we have I reckon is an example of one man, Ezra, living by the word of God. And so um, here's the, the shape of the passage. So this is like the, the helicopter flight over these two chapters, a really fast flyover. If you look at the first 10 verses of chapter 7, it's like a narrator speaking, introducing everything and showing you where we're heading over the next two chapters. Ezra is introduced to us with that long list of names, which when you're giving a sermon, you can avoid reading them. When you're doing the Bible reading, you're stuck with it. Um, but those names serve to record Ezra's descent from Aaron, the chief priest, the first priest. And in verse 11, Ezra is actually referred to as a priest. So this is a priest coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem. So the chapter opens with this rather long sentence. It goes, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of those people, um, and down the bottom in verse, end of five, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, and verse six, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He's a priest in the line of Aaron returning um, to the temple in Jerusalem. We also see in verse 6 that he is introduced as a teacher, someone who teaches the law of Moses. He's well-versed in the law of Moses, it says. And as you think about it, the priests in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, they weren't just there to offer sacrifices. They were also there to teach the law to the people. And when you think about it, if they're in exile away from the temple, well, that's what something they can keep doing, keep teaching the law to the people. And clearly, that's what Ezra has been doing, and he has a reputation for it. So in verse 6 and in verse 10, it makes it very clear that Ezra was serious and committed to teaching the law of Moses, the Torah, the Old Covenant. We're reminded of the importance of, uh, and the place of that Torah by being told in verse 6, it says, He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Just this reminder there that Yahweh has given this word to his people, these instructions on how they're to live. And so we're still looking at the introduction to these two chapters in verses 1 to 10. In verse 6, we're also told that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra everything that he asked for. It says literally that, um, verse 6, the king had granted him, or Ezra, everything he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And then in verse 7, you discover he returns from Babylon with a group of other people. In verses 8 to 9, it shows that their journey took well, about four months. So if you look at verse 8, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. It's a long trek back to Jerusalem. And as you read on, it's a trek that involves dangers, being at risk on the road. And so then verse 10 closes with the, 
it closes this kind of introduction and summary of what we're looking at with a second reminder that Ezra taught the law of Yahweh. In fact, he was devoted to the study of it and keeping it as well as teaching it. So verse 10, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. There's your first 10 verses. Let's speed up a bit now. What you get next is you've got a, a carbon copy or a photocopy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. It's a letter that gives him permission to do what he's going to do. And as you look across that letter, it gives him permission to take other Israelites with him back um, to Jerusalem in verse 13. Verse 15, it, the king gave silver and gold to Ezra to take back. Also in verse 16, he's got permission to gather more wealth. Um, verse 18, some of the silver and the gold it's, it's to be used to um, offer, buy and offer sacrifices to the God of Israel. And then the rest can be used at their own discretion. Verses 21 to 23, there's instructions there to the treasurers on the other side of the Euphrates for them to give Ezra whatever he needs to, up to a limit. And then in verse 24, um, the priests and workers in the temple, they're not to pay any tax. You're not to charge them tax. 25 and 26, tell Ezra to teach the people to comply with the word of the Lord. Um, Artaxerxes back in Babylon wants the people of the trans-Euphrates to be... Um, paying attention to the law of the God of Israel. We're doing this very quick flyover the passage. So verses 1 to 10, you've got an introduction and an overview. Verses 11 to 26, you've got this letter from the king. And then the rest of the passage reads like Ezra's diary. He tells us what happened. And so as you step through that, verses 27 and 28, Ezra praises God for his sovereign power over everything and for his provision. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, we have a record of all the names of the returnees. And when you see a long list of names, it can be helpful to read through and see who you recognise. Verses eight, uh, 15 to 32 records the actual preparation for that long journey back to Jerusalem. And then finally, in verses 33 to 36, it tells us about the arrival, the sacrifices being offered that were supposed to be offered. And that's the passage. That's the kind of the, the flyover of chapters 7 and 8. Now, as I said before, let me point out two things to you. Firstly, this passage is one that shows us the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign hand in everything. Look at how many times we're told this. So back up in verse 6 of chapter 7, 7 verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Just this reminder that, the Torah, the Old Testament law, it's given by God. It's been preserved so that it's now in the hands of Ezra. God's in control of that whole process, making sure that his people has his words and can take them to heart. Um, God still expects his people to take his words to heart and has made it possible for his word to be in the hands of Ezra. Um, the fact that Ezra is now arriving in Jerusalem as a teacher of the word of God is all part of God's plan, is what you're seeing. And you notice how many times that re is reinforced by the, the words, the hand of God um, was on him or on them. So in verse 6 of chapter 7, the second part of the verse, the king had granted Ezra everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Artaxerxes was pleased to give Ezra whatever he needs, whatever he asked for. Um, was it because Ezra 
was a very persuasive speaker, that he could wiggle his way in and get what he wants from the Persian king. We might have been, but that's not what we're being told. We're being told, no, it's because God's at work here. God's got his hand on this situation. Jump down again to verse 9 of chapter 7. You see the same thing again. Verse 9, he, Ezra, had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the first month, of the fifth month, um, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. He is God in control of these circumstances, bringing his man Ezra back to Jerusalem to teach the law there. Or if you jump down to verse 27, this time it's on the lips of Ezra, so 7 verse 27, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who was put into the king's heart. So he's been at work in the king's heart, or down in verse 28, halfway through the verse, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, there's Ezra acknowledging God's sovereign control over the pagan king um, and over every circumstance here. And then down in chapter 8, verse 18, when Ezra assembles the people ready to leave to Jerusalem, he works out that, hang on, they need some more Levites. We're missing the Levites. And so he sends people to gather the Levites. But listen to how it reads. So verse 18, because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us and lists the capable men that were brought. Just this another reminder, here's God in control. It may feel a bit tedious running through the, all these verses, but you get the point. It's jumping off the page at us. God's hand is on this. God is sovereignly in control. If you look down in 8 verse 22, as they prepare to um, leave on their four-month journey, it's going to be dangerous. And see how Ezra trusts that God is in control. So halfway through verse 22, the gracious hand of, the, of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. This trust that if they're living for God, God will look after them. He doesn't want the king's guards to go with them because he's declared his trust in God. And down in verse 31 of chapter 8, you see that his trust was rewarded where it says the hand of our God was on us and he protected us from the enemies and battles along the way. Skipping through these two chapters, you see the sovereign hand of God at work. Just like we saw back in chapter 1, with God working in the heart of Cyrus and of his people to cause them to want to return. Um, like God moved in Cyrus, he also moved in Artaxerxes. And so in chapter 7, verses 27 and 28, Ezra praises God that he is in control, that he is sovereign. And as you look at the king's letter, you start to, I reckon you get a little bit of a look at how, in fact, God is controlling this situation. I wonder when, whether Artaxerxes even acknowledged properly the God of Israel. He may not have at all. So if you look at 7 verse 17, he says, This money, um, with this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. It's like, I think... Artaxerxes wants these sacrifices offered just, just to cover his bases. The different nations in his kingdom, to have them all um, praying to their gods for him, maybe. Or maybe you see the same thing down in 7 verse 23. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done for, with diligence for the, temple, uh, for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? When you think about the way that God's sovereign hand works... Artaxerxes doesn't even need to be living to please God for God to use him to achieve his purposes, his fulfil his promises and show his sovereignty. And as we read on in this, account, in this account of Ezra, it's pretty hard to miss the way 
that God shows his control over every circumstance. And that's a lesson that I reckon we can learn. So as we read this as New Testament Christians, as we see God's sovereignty and the details of how it works, surely it ought to cause us to trust that God is in control, even of our circumstances too. Just like God is in control when Jesus dies and rises again. It's God working to achieve his purposes. Just like God was at work in the people that brought the gospel to you, just like he's at work in your heart, convicting you of the truth of the gospel. It's God's sovereign hand involved, um, preparing us for the return of Jesus. So that's the first thing to show you in the passage. And the second thing is um, the one I drew your attention to first, the example of Ezra, a man living by the word of God, a first-hand example as he records this kind of diary account an example that I think we can learn from as well. Come back to the way that Ezra is introduced in verse 10 of chapter 7. 7 verse 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. It's just this little reminder that God is at work, that Ezra wants to live for God. He's not going to be just spraying out words, teaching people what to do. He's going to be living by example. He learns his way through God's word, the Old Testament word of God that he has to hand, and seeks to observe it, seeks to to live according to it. Um, may not seem like a big thing, but it is. If we want to call on others to live according to God's word, then we need to be doing it as well. We need to start living our own lives for God, running our own homes to please God, making our church a place that brings glory to God. Otherwise, we're not practicing what we preach. And trust me, if we don't, others will see through our hypocrisy, even if we can't. But as we study God's word, we should be praying that God would be at work in us, transforming our minds, renewing our hearts. And all that should happen before we attempt to teach and model to others. Um, Second thing to consider about Ezra's example is the way that he acknowledges God's sovereignty. I've drawn your attention to God's sovereignty through the passage, but look at how Ezra interacts with God's sovereignty. So look at his praises in chapter 7, verse 28, second half of the verse. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go with me. Ezra acts out his confidence or his trust in God. He knows God's in control, and so he acts on that. He takes courage to do what God wants him to do. It's a test of his faith. Does he actually believe God is in control? Yes, he does. Enough to put his life in God's hands, which you see again down in 8 verse 22. He's ashamed to ask for guards from the, from the Persian king. Instead, he trusts God. He puts his life and the life of his fellow countrymen in his hands, in God's hands rather, trusting that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And don't be mistaken, this isn't blind faith. Many people think that Christians have blind faith. We don't. We trust in a God who we know is sovereign. We look at his track record. We know that he can be trusted. That's not blind faith. That's trusting that God will continue to be the God that he's shown himself to be. And some Christians, they'll, they'll, they'll ask you to do this thing like naming and claiming. You know, name this good thing and claim it, and God will provide. And more often than not, what they're wanting to, you to do is to Um, name and claim things which are rather selfish and self-centred. What you see Ezra doing here is he's devoted to the law of the Lord. He understands the word of God. 
He understands what's important to God. He understands the temple in Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. That's what he's setting out to do. He's setting out to do God's will. And he trusts that God will help make that happen. Um, For us, I guess, um, a close parallel would be when we take calculated risks for the sake of the gospel. We know that God wants to see people become Christians and we take a little bit of a risk because we know that God is in control. And whatever happens, his plans and purposes will be fulfilled. Um, I may have saved the best bit till last. Look at the way that Ezra keeps himself busy. Look at how he interacts. So you've got God's sovereignty on one hand, God doing everything, and yet Ezra doesn't stay idle. He's busy. You see it all the way through. You see it first, I reckon, in chapter 7, verse 6, second half of the verse. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra has been asking the king of Persia for stuff. You'll get a taste for this um, if you read Esther and see how difficult or how fraught it is to approach the king, or if you read Nehemiah and his fear of of talking to the king. Well, here Ezra's been asking stuff of Artaxerxes. Yes, God's sovereign. God's in control. God's got his hand in all this. But Ezra's in there, acting, busy. Um, You'll see it again in 8 verse 15 when Ezra assembles the people in 8 verse 15 ready to return, there's this glaring lack of Levites. So what does he do? Well, he sends people to get some Levites. He acts, he does, he knows what needs to be done and gets busy doing it, all the while trusting that God is actually in control. So if you look at 8 verse 15, I assembled them at the canal that that flows toward Ahava and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people, and the priests, I found no Levites. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemai, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, um, Jarib, Elnathan, there's two there, um, and those other people, and sent them off to get some Levites. There he is acting, putting into action what he knows needs to be done. So God's sovereignty doesn't mean you do nothing. It means you attempt to live for our sovereign God in a way that would be pleasing to him. If we're attempting to live by God's word, then we'll see things that need to be done and we get in there and we do them. It's not just a case of you know, letting go and letting God. God's sovereign, he's in control and he actually uses his people. And so you take these risks, you do these things and you do so prayerfully like Ezra did in chapter 8 verse 21. Um, there by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. He didn't ask for a guard from the Persian king. Instead, they prayed to their sovereign God and asked him to look after them. Um, Two things to keep thinking on as you read Ezra chapter 7 and 8. First, God's sovereignty and the way that works. And the second thing to keep thinking on is this example of Ezra, someone who's attempting to live by God's word and how that plays out. Um, along the way, I've attempted, I've attempted to show you some of the tips for us as New Testament Christians, the way this hits home for us in our lives. Ezra is an example to us of spending time studying and understanding God's word and being devoted to living according to it. Ezra is also an example of teaching God's word to others. He's also an example of having humble trust in God's sovereignty and shows us how trusting God's sovereignty doesn't negate the fact that we need to be busy living for God. 
But perhaps there's something to add here. I wonder if we need to add the importance, from our New Testament perspective, of realising that while we wait for Jesus to return, we are going to continue to stumble. And so, yes, we want to be living according to God's word. But we will fail. We will stumble. And our performance as Christians is not what makes us God's people. The fact that we're trusting in Jesus' death in our place is what makes him, uh, makes us his children. So we're fully dependent on God's sacrifice in Jesus, the work that Jesus has finished. Um, I started the sermon with this kind of light-hearted example of training a dog um, to do tricks. made this sort of abrupt transition to us as Christians. How do you teach us to live according to God's word? The thing with dogs, though, is it takes a lot of repetition and a lot of practice for them to learn anything off you. And I wonder, too, if there's a similarity with us, too. It can take a long time for us to learn to take these things to heart and to live according to God's word. So let's pray that we would be doing that. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the way that you have given us your word. We thank you for your sovereign hand that's preserved it for us. We thank you for people like Ezra in the Old Testament who are examples to us of what it looks like to live for you, to live according to your word. Father, we pray that as a group of Christians here in Kenmore, we ask that we would be doing that. And we know that as we stand out as different to the world around us and as we seek to live to please you, we will meet opposition. Lord, please help us to keep trusting in your sovereignty. Father, we pray that as we trust in you, that we would be busy serving you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.